We turn in our Bibles again this evening to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're working our way through this lengthy Sermon of Jesus, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And we've looked already at the first part of chapter 5. We're going to begin reading this evening at verse 13, and then through verse 26, Matthew 5, from verse 13 through 26, and this is on page 4 in the second part of the Pew Bibles, page 4 in the Pew Bibles, the second part, the New Testament. Matthew 5 and verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out, and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house." Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot nor one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven." Then from verse 21 through 26 is the text for the sermon this evening. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught or anything against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift." Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily, I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. We read this far in the holy and inspired word of God. In verse 17 of this chapter, Jesus begins a new section in the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we looked at verses 17 through 20, 
And there were two main points that Jesus makes in those verses. The first is that he did not come to destroy. He did not come to abrogate. He didn't come to do away with the law of the Ten Commandments. But he came to fulfill it. And he came to fulfill the law, that is the Old Testament law, in every respect. Not only in obedience to the Ten Commandments, his perfect obedience to the moral requirements of the law. But he came to fulfill the law in its prophecies, in being the reality of its types, and in obedience to the Father's will that he come to bear the sins of his people. And so Christ doesn't destroy the law, as he would have been accused of, but he establishes the law. The other thing that Jesus teaches in those verses is especially in verse 20, and it's this, that our righteousness as citizens of the kingdom of heaven must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And this means not only that we have a perfect righteousness in Jesus Christ, but it also means that our uprightness Our godliness is beyond, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. True spirituality must go deeper than the obedience of the scribes and the Pharisees to the law, though they were scrupulous in their obedience to the commandments. Their obedience was merely external and for the praise of men, and yours must come from the heart and be pleasing to God. And in the rest of this chapter, Jesus really applies that to six different situations. He works it out in these, we might say, real-life situations, in real-life applications of the commandments. He's not just teaching here something abstract, but something that, that will affect our living. And we'll see that tonight as we look at the first of these, the sixth commandment. There is a contrast that Jesus uses here to teach. And he repeats this contrast six times in the rest of the chapter. You have heard that it has been said by them of old time, and then he'll say something, but I say unto you, then he'll correct what was said by them of old time. Now, he speaks of them of old time and what was said by them of old time. This is not a reference to what was written by Moses in the law in the first five books of the Old Testament. Had Jesus been referring to the Old Testament, he would have said something like he did to Satan during his temptations. It is written. It is written. But Jesus is not referring to The law of Moses, when he says, you've heard that it's been said by them of old time. Rather, he's referring to a long rabbinical tradition, Jewish tradition of interpreting the Old Testament law. And the contrast here between what Jesus says is not a contrast to the law of the Old Testament, but to the false interpretations of that law that put the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees above the commandments of God. And with those traditions, reduce the meaning of the commandments to something merely external. This is the way 
the Pharisees understood the law. And that's clear from something that the Apostle Paul writes about regarding himself in Romans chapter 7. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He says, touching the law, that is the law of the Pharisees, he was blameless. And the Apostle Paul thought that he was keeping the law perfectly. Until he says this in in Romans chapter 7, that the commandment came, the commandment which said, thou shalt not covet. And he was convicted. He was convicted of his sin. He says the commandment came, sin revived, that is, I came to an awareness of the sinfulness of my heart, and I died. I realized that I was dead, depraved, Before God, I wasn't keeping the law of God perfectly. I couldn't keep the law of God perfectly. And he hadn't realized, as a Pharisee, that it was the spirit of the law that mattered. That coveting is as much sin in God's eyes as theft. And when the commandment came and said, Thou shalt not covet, he understood it. Now, That's really the theme or the line that we have running through the rest of this chapter as Jesus explains the spiritual dimension of the law in application to specific commandments. He didn't come to destroy the law. And your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees by your understanding the spiritual character of the law. So we're going to look at the first one of those six examples or applications that Jesus makes here in verses 21 through 26. And we're going to do that under the theme, Jesus' reset on murder. Jesus' reset on murder. First, notice what really constitutes murder. Second, the positive calling that Jesus gives here. And then third, the urgency of Jesus' instruction. I call it the reset on murder. You know what happens when you push the reset button, button, boys and girls, or men who work with computers, you'll have a computer and you want to restore it to factory settings. And you do that in order to, to get rid of all the misinformation and all the clutter that has accumulated. And Jesus does that here. He presses the reset to take us back to the original to the commandment and what it meant in its original delivery and context in the Old Testament. The scribes and the Pharisees had reduced the meaning and the demands of the law so as to make it look as though they were obeying the law. And they did that here with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill in two ways. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, that is, the rabbinical tradition that's generational, was very familiar to them, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. At first reading, that sounds like the Old Testament scriptures. But there are two things that the Pharisees did to this, the scribes and the Pharisees. First was they added to the commandment. Thou shalt not kill, and then this addition, whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. 
Now, you might argue, well, that's found in the Old Testament too, and it was in Numbers chapter 35, verses 30 and 31. And so what's the problem? The problem is that they put these two things next to each other, and we could say juxtapose them to one another, so that really what they're saying here is this, you are in danger of the judgment only if you kill, or only if you commit murder, the act of murder. That's what they meant. So they added to the commandment. It only applies to the act of murder. The other thing that they did was they reduced the sanctions or the consequences of disobedience to the law. They reduced those to punishments at the hands of men. And that's the idea here of judgment. Ye have heard that it was said, Thou shalt not kill. Whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. And Jesus, in the next verse, talks about judgment, counsel, and hellfire. That's what was missing. You'll be in danger of the judgment if you kill, they said. You'll be guilty before the courts of the law. Man's judgment. So, so long as you hadn't murdered, you had not broken this commandment, and there were no consequences or condemnation for you before the law. And they reduced the meaning of the commandment this way, so that they could say, I have kept the law. I'm blameless before the law. And they escaped the condemnation then of the law. And then what happened? Well, you see how that worked out in their thinking when Jesus came preaching. He came and he ate with publicans and sinners. He went to the house of Levi and ate with the, the publicans and the tax collectors. And the Pharisees asked his disciples, why does Jesus eat with these people? Doesn't he know who they are? And you remember Jesus' answer. On the one hand, he gives the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal or the lost son whom he goes out to find. But then he also says this, Matthew 9, verses 12 and 13, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you think that you are keeping the law perfectly, if you don't know your sin, I didn't come for you. I came for those who are sick. I came for those who know their sinfulness. And Jesus' point here with regard to the Pharisees is that in their legalism, they completely missed the whole meaning of the law of God and reduced it to externals and were content with their own obedience so that they didn't need Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And Jesus is saying here, no, no, the law is much more than that. Don't be so easily and quickly satisfied with your obedience. Well, of course, there's application in that to us because we have a tendency to do exactly the same. We use the commandments and the admonitions of the law and the Word of God as a, as a kind of checklist. And we run through them mentally and think we're doing pretty well. And then we use the law to look around and to identify the sins of others, maybe some others in the church, but especially the world. Look at them. Look at how they're living. 
And then like the Pharisees, we think that we're doing better and we miss the whole spirit and meaning of the law. And rather than seeing ourselves as those who need the Savior, we see ourselves as above the law. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and this was exactly his idea. He asked, Master, how do I inherit eternal life? He's asking really this, how do I do it on my own? And Jesus says, well, you keep the law perfectly. And he says, I've done that from my youth upward. As though he had kept the law of God perfectly. And if that's the way we're thinking, we miss the whole spirit and the content and the meaning of the law of God. And so Jesus here establishes the law over against that external, legalistic, Phariseistic thinking. And he does that in this section, especially with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And what he does is he explores the the pre-murderous disposition of our heart. He makes us see that murder isn't something that just randomly happens. But that murder comes from anger, and murder comes from hatred in the heart of man. And if anger and hatred lead to murder, then they are as much breaking of this commandment as the act of murder itself. And that's the point of verse 22. Two things, anger and hatred. These, Jesus says, are murder. First, anger. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now that can't mean that anger, all anger, is always wrong. We know that Jesus himself was angry with a righteous anger in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. He threw out the money changers from the temple because he said, you've turned my father's house of prayer into a den of thieves. And with a righteous indignation, he drove them from the temple. And sometimes we see this even in the way that he deals with his disciples and their unbelief so there's a there's a righteous anger but now as we think about Jesus anger we have to remember that he was God slow to wrath and that when he became angry he was always this was always accompanied by a grief over the unbelief and the hypocrisy of man rivers of water run down my eyes because they Keep not thy commandments. And unlike us, Jesus was never angry at being personally mistreated. When he was arrested, and when he was put on trial, when he was mocked and beaten and crucified, the Bible tells us that he went as a lamb to the slaughter. He never pushed back with a self-defensive rage. But First Peter 2, verse 23, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He committed his cause to God. And don't we see that especially when hanging on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prayed for ignorant men. His anger, we could say, was always 
for the sake of others. It was a righteous anger not only, but a loving anger in which he responded to offenses against God and wrongs committed against others. As an example of that, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, he entered into the synagogue, Mark 3, verse 1, and there was a man with, with, there with a withered hand, and the scribes and the Pharisees there were watching him with this question, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day so that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, stand forth, and he said to them, is it lawful? To do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill. And they kept silent. And when he had looked round about on them with anger. What was his anger? His anger was especially this, that with their man-made traditions, they had despised the needy. And his anger was a love for this man with the withered hand. Our anger is usually the opposite to this. It's about ourselves. We've been hurt by a minor offense or a minor disrespect shown towards us. Someone merges in the traffic lane in front of us. Something doesn't go our way. Someone doesn't live up to our expectations. And then when we become angry, we blame someone else for the anger. You made me angry rather than realizing that anger is something that arises from our own hearts, and when the Bible says, let not the sun go down on your wrath, it means you deal with what's going on in your heart, your anger. And we make it sound as though anger is something that's imposed on us from the outside. And this is what Jesus means when he says here, he who is angry with his brother without a cause. Is it an anger of jealousy for God? Is it an anger of love for someone who's been mistreated? Or does it have to do with myself? And when it has to do my, with myself, that's an anger without a cause. And, and what Jesus is saying here is that all such anger is murder. Because that's exactly where it goes. Murder comes from this. I want you out of my life. And that's the attitude of the anger. Now Jesus is teaching this by contrast. You've heard that it has been said, but I say unto you. When Jesus says, I say unto you, I said earlier, he's pressing the reset button. He's taking us back to the Old Testament. And if we go back to the Old Testament, we can see that this is exactly the teaching of the Old Testament. In the very first altercation that's recorded in Scripture between Cain and Abel, in Genesis chapter 4, this is exactly what the Scripture is teaching us. God doesn't come to Cain only after he's killed Abel and says, and say, you're guilty of murder, but God addresses the anger of Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. God is saying to Cain, 
you don't deal with this anger, it's going to get a hold of your heart. And so God addresses not just murder, but its cause in anger. In the second part of this verse, verse 22, Jesus deals with another cause of murder. Not now anger, but hatred or contempt, despising somebody. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now it's interesting that Jesus moves here from the heart to words. And really that reiterates what God said to Cain in the beginning. If you don't deal with your anger, sin is at the door and it will pounce. It will come to expression. Your hatred, your anger will come out in your words. And your words also are murder. Listen to Proverbs chapter 12. Uh, Proverbs 25 and verse 18. A man that beareth false witness against his neighbor is a maul and a sword and a sharp arrow. A maul is a heavy club. And what Solomon is saying there is this, that like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow, weapons that are used to kill is a man who bears false witness against his brother. The two expressions here that Jesus refers to, raka and thou fool. Let's understand the difference between the two. Raka is an Aramaic word which means really empty head. I suppose synonyms in the English language today would be words like this, idiot, moron, dummy. And it's an expression of contempt for one's mind, one's intellect. You don't get it. The other word that Jesus refers to here is thou fool, and this is more than just an evaluation of one's mind, it's an assessment of one's character, it's an insult of one's heart, so that raka really means this, I wouldn't expect you to know any different. Whereas the second one, thou fool, is just like, you're a bad person. And Jesus' point here is that these condescending attitudes that are expressed in words are murder before God. By them we're saying that the other is worthless, that we don't want them in our life, that they might as well be dead. Now it's not saying... Jesus is not saying here that the thoughts are the same as the action of murder or that the guilt of words is equal to the guilt of the crime of murder. But this, that all of us are guilty of murder because all of us have words and thoughts like this. And that's the reset on this commandment. The Pharisees thought, we're not guilty before the law. And Jesus is saying, no, all of us, all of you, 
And that means, of course, that there isn't a person sitting here tonight in church who's not a murderer. How many parents haven't murdered their children in their hearts or with their words, with expressions like this? You're good for nothing. How many boys and girls aren't there here tonight who on the playground have said to someone else, I don't want you around. You may play with us. Happens in the workplace. A boss walks away and someone says, I could kill him right now. It happens in our marriages. With a glare, rolling of the eyes, and we're saying, you don't get it, fool. And as we think through that application, because that's exactly the point that Jesus is making to us tonight, don't you understand what Jesus means when he says your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? It's not enough that you say, I haven't killed anybody, so I'm not guilty before the law. No, your obedience to the law must go deeper. And your application of the commandment must be broader in your life. It's not just the act of murder, but it's my words and my thoughts. And that brings us to the positive calling with regard to the sixth commandment. Now, if we think of the sixth commandment all by itself, thou shalt not kill, we understand that the main positive calling is to love the life of the neighbor. That's the positive requirement of the sixth commandment, to love the life of the neighbor. I must not only refrain from killing, I must not only refrain from anger and hatred, I must not only refrain from evil thoughts and words, but positively, I must love the neighbor. Love the brother. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the summary. And this is the debt that we owe when we stand before the law. This love perhaps is nowhere so well and so positively described for us as in the familiar chapter on love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you see both of these ideas, anger and hatred, but put in the positive, the opposites to anger and hatred, because now we're talking about love. And what does love do? First Corinthians 13, instead of being angry, love suffers long. Love is not easily provoked. Love endures all things. That means you're patient with others. It means you have a long fuse. It means you're not quick to anger, not easily provoked. It means you bear with others. 
love. And also, love is in contrast to this despising. Raka, thou fool. Instead, love thinks no evil of the other. Believes the best. Love rejoices not in iniquity, but in the truth. So it doesn't want to hear the worst about others, but the best. And love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. This is talking about your attitude towards others. You believe the best about them. You hope the best about them. And what a contrast to the thought that despises you idiot. No, love bears, believes, and hopes. Well, where does this love come from? Well, it comes and arises in the heart of the child of God, in the experience of God's own love towards us, because we don't deserve that love. And that's the character of love in the Scripture, that it loves the unworthy. Psalm 103, He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. We don't get what we deserve from Him. God commends His love towards us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's in the experience of that love that we love one another. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. You know the love of God? Then this is the positive requirement here, to love. But now Jesus, as it were, puts meat on the bones here. This love manifests itself. This love manifests itself in two different relationships that Jesus describes here in Matthew chapter 5. First in verses 23 and 24, relationship to your brother. And then in verses 25 and 26, relationship to your adversary. Earlier in verse 9 of this chapter, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. And now Jesus, as it were, brings application into real life in obedience to the sixth commandment. This is how you must love, by being a peacemaker. That's what's described here. Listen carefully to verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught or anything against thee, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. And I don't think we hear what it said. We often think this, if I've got something against someone, Matthew 18, I have to go to him. That's not what Jesus says here. He says, if you have an idea that someone has something against you, you go to him. You go to him. And that therefore, at the beginning of verse 23, is the important thing here. We're talking in verse 22 about our own thoughts. Thoughts of hatred, thoughts of anger. And then Jesus says, therefore, 
He's saying this, if it's incumbent on you to deal with your own thoughts of anger and hatred, then it's incumbent on you also, if you love your brother, to deal with his thoughts of hatred and anger. And to apply the gospel to those in his life. You concerned? To be loved? Or you're concerned to love? Then in relation with your brother should also be concerned to be loved. And what Jesus is saying here is it's not okay for us to simply leave things festering. Even if you believe that what the brother has against you, that he's wrong in that, still, Jesus says, you go to him, you make the effort. And what a different approach that is to the world's approach to conflict. Leave it alone. Jesus doesn't say that. This is probably the most shocking thing that Jesus has said thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. Someone has something against you, It might not even be true, and you go to him. This is how things should be, Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of Christ. Don't let bitterness, don't let anger, don't let evil speaking, don't let unresolved issues continue behind the scenes or below the surface, but deal with each other honestly. Seek resolution because you are brothers if your brother has ought against you. Listen to the example of this in Genesis 13, verse 8, where Abraham and Lot, their, their shepherds, were fighting over the land. And Abraham says this to Lot in Genesis 13, verse 8, Let there be no strife between us or between our shepherds, for we are brethren. We're brothers. We can't be fighting. And he wants a peaceful resolution. Now that requires two things, doesn't it? That you go to your brother. Requires a true humility. And it requires a trust. That by your going to him, the truth will come out. And he'll, with you, want to see that. And that humility comes out here in verse 25 when Jesus says, Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way. The word adversary here refers to someone who is an enemy. This is in contrast to the brother. Go to your brother, and now Jesus says, Agree with your adversary. This is not necessarily someone who is outside of the church and is opposed to you and is persecuting you. But Jesus is saying that when there's something between you and someone else that can't be peacefully resolved, so that this one is your adversary now, still you have a responsibility. Romans 12 verse 18 puts it this way, As much as is possible, be at peace with all men. As much as is possible. And that obviously means it's not always possible. It's not always possible. But then, we don't just say, oh well. Still, these three things are necessary. 
First, you seek peace. You want to correct the injustice. This is something that you'll do face to face so that you can show respect and sincerity, so that you can show love and even hope for reconciliation. We live in a day of, of media and communication, uh, electronic communication and texting and, and publicity. Everything's published on Facebook or some other form of social media, and, and it conveys all the wrong attitudes. You want to sit down with your brother or your adversary so that you can convey love, hope, respect, sincerity. You seek peace as much as is possible. Be at peace with all men. So that first. And then second, you agree. You are agreeable. Agree with thine adversary, Jesus says, and that is, you are ready to listen to him. You're ready to admit your own fault in, in whatever division there is between you. You cannot make peace with another without taking responsibility for your own wrong and admitting that, even if that's just part of the division, even if it's just a very small part of the division. Agree with thine adversary. And this is where trust is important, especially when it comes to a brother. Your admitting will free the other to confess their faults. So seek peace, be agreeable. And then third, Romans chapter 12, give place to wrath. Give place to it. What does that mean? It means really... To let it go for now. Romans chapter 12. Dearly beloved, verse 19. Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy, and again that's an adversary, hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. And Jesus is not, uh, the scripture is not saying here, you heap those coals of fire on him. No, it's saying you, as it were, kill him with kindness. And then this, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. To be overcome with evil is to, to let bitterness reign in our heart. Be not overcome. With evil, but agree with your adversary while you're in the way. So that's the positive calling here. And, and leave, leave the vengeance in the hands of the Lord, as Christ himself did, who committed himself to him who is faithful. Does your Righteousness here in the Sixth Commandment exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? You're not a murderer, but are you perhaps murdering with anger and with contempt and with words? 
How are you loving your brother or your adversary? Do you seek peace? Do you pursue it when it's disrupted? How about bitterness and vengeance? What's weighing on your soul when you think about someone with whom you've had a conflict? Or you're leaving those things in God's hand. These are serious, very serious matters. And that's what Jesus brings home here, the, the urgency of his instruction. We, we should see as we look at this pa- passage, the priority that Jesus puts on on this and the urgency with which he brings it home to us. You see the priority when you compare in verse 23, going to your brother, with verse 24, worship. Leave there thy gift before the altar. Don't go to worship. Stop going to worship. And first go and be reconciled with your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying this, don't even bother going to worship. If you haven't first dealt with your anger and your contempt and at least made an effort at reconciliation with your brother, worship is simply a sham and an external show if you harbor hatred and bitterness towards a brother or sister with whom you come to worship. Don't do that, he's saying. You see, God's concern is not the external, but the heart. And again, you can go back in the Old Testament and see this. One outstanding example is Isaiah chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And the issue here is the same. Isaiah, 13, Isaiah 1, 13 and 14. Bring no more vain oblations, incenses and abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. Why was that? Why does God say, stop it. Stop bringing your gifts. Stop coming in worship. Stop keeping the solemn feasts. Don't do it. I hate it. Well, it's exactly the same reason. Verses 16 and 17 of Isaiah 1. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil. And then this. Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, plead the fatherless, judge for the widow. And he's saying, stop hating. Stop despising. Then come and worship. And so Jesus puts a priority on this. True spirituality is not to be judged by the externals. It has to do with the, we could say, the outworking of the principles of the gospel and the love of God for us in our love towards one another. This is what's needed. If the church is to truly come 
and really give worship to God. It's not simply the externals, but a culture of gospel where people implement the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way that they live with one another. Repentance. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. First go to your brother. Then worship. And isn't that the point as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, at the beginning of the chapter, the great chapter on love? Listen to these words of the apostle. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity or love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. Knowledge, giftedness, giving, acts of charity, martyrdom, giving your life to be burned, your body to be burned. If you don't have love, they amount to nothing. And your religion is simply like hitting on an empty pan and making some noise. First, go and be reconciled with your brother. Then, come with your gift. So Jesus points to the priority of it, but he also points to the urgency of it. The urgency. Looking again at the words of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, you're in danger of the judgment. You're in danger of the counsel. You're in danger of hellfire. First, he says, be reconciled to your brother. And then in verses 25 and 26, he, he gives this extended illustration, which is really talking about the fact that you may find yourself in a situation of no return, a punishment where there's no return. And what is that punishment where there's no return? Well, it's hellfire, isn't it? Agree with thine adversary whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge. And as far as the Pharisees were concerned, that's where it ended. The sanctions ended with the judge. But Jesus says you deliver it to the judge. And then the judge delivered thee to the officer to be cast into prison. And I say thou shalt by no means come out of prison till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Now Jesus is not saying here that we avoid hell and we avoid judgment by our doing, but he's emphasizing here the holiness and the justice of the God with whom we have to do, that unresolved sin in our lives and in our hearts is indeed a barrier to entrance into the kingdom. That's what Jesus means at the end of verse 20 when he says, "Ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not by what I do do I gain entrance, but certainly by my sinful deeds. 
which I don't repent of and don't turn from, I'm kept out. And so to say that I have the righteousness of Christ and I'm forgiven never gives me a license to live as I please or to deal with others as I please and not deal with sin and heart issues. The child of God, the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, on the road to glory, wants to grow in character and in Christ-likeness. And so he takes the word of God and the law of God with all seriousness. His concern is not the external, but the spiritual application of the word of God in his life. Are you a murderer? Think of now what we describe as another use of the law. Whence knowest thou thy misery? The answer is out of the law of God. How do I know my sin? Because this is how the law comes to me. It comes to me and it exposes, yes, I am a murderer describes me that way. So that, as a child of God, I not only repent and turn, but I put all my confidence in Jesus Christ and find all my forgiveness in Him and not resting in my own obedience. May God give us that kind of understanding of his word and law, as well as that kind of repentance and faith in the Savior. Amen. Father, we are thankful for the instruction of Jesus here again. It, it digs deep into our souls and our heart and our nature, and, and we learn to see more of who we are by nature as well as our inability to, 